Jeremiah chapter 14. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They mourn for the land and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because the ground is parched for there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do do it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you, O oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O oh Lord, are in our midst and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus says the Lord to this people. Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and will punish their sins. Jeremiah is now going to begin preaching his sixth sermon in the book. The sermon begins here in chapter 14, continues throughout the chapter, continues into chapter 15, verse 21. The fourth sermon began in chapter 11, the fifth sermon in chapter 13, and now this sixth sermon. It will begin with suffering in verses 1 through 6. A terrible drought grips the land. And when you read in the scriptures about droughts, often they become a type and a picture of another kind of a drought. A spiritual drought. The absence of the presence of God's favor. As a matter of fact, it goes from suffering... To supplication in verses 7 through 9, the people cry out to God for mercy, wanting to know the reason for their suffering. And then it continues with an examination and an explanation of their sinfulness in verse 10. You want to know why judgment is coming? Do you want to know about the drought? Do you want to know about the suffering? I'm going to explain it to you. Sin has brought an invitation to judgment. And so in the next few chapters, Jeremiah is going to deliver four messages. And sandwiched in between these messages are his prayers. He speaks. He prays. The Lord answers his prayers. There was a very famous preacher named John Henry Jewett who said, quote, preaching that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. And Jeremiah's preaching will cost him dearly. 
He is pained by his people. He is unpopular by his message. The themes of his messages you already know. It's about sin. It's about a refusal to repent. It's about judgment. In Jeremiah's book, remember, he charges Judah and Jerusalem with backsliding, with depravity, with perjury, with the refusal to accept God's discipline, with hard-heartedness, with ignorance of God's law, with corruption, with forsaking God's law, with idolatry, with breaking God's covenant. And that's just the first two chapters. And so Jeremiah brings a message. A message of the need To be serious about your sin and to be serious about repentance and to be serious about what it means to have a right relationship with God. J. Wallace Hamilton wrote, quote, our modern age is a pushover for the shallow and the shortcut. We want to change everything except the human heart. We'll change our hair. We'll change the way we dress. We'll change our clothes. We'll change our church. We'll change this. We'll change the carpet. We'll change that. We'll change the government. We'll change the party affiliation. We'll change. We'll change. We'll change anything and everything except what needs to be changed the most. And that's inside of us. How do you change the human heart? How do you go from a backsliding heart and depravity and perjury to an open heart and a willing heart and an obedient heart? And as you read Jeremiah, you'll notice something. He is bold in the presence of the people. And he is broken in the presence of God. That should be a little tiny clue for each and every one of us to be bold in the presence of people, to be broken in the presence of God. As a matter of fact, Warren Wiersbe gives chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, the title, the sermons, the supplications and the sobs. You're going to see why. Look at the catastrophic drought in verse 1. Look again. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Notice how he begins his message. God has given me a message. It's a message about the problem of the droughts. By the way, in Egypt where they had come from, the Nile watered the farmland. The Nile brought life and the Nile brought flooding, and with it there was an abundance of crops. But Judah and Israel was a land that was dependent upon the rain. And the Gentiles and the people who surrounded uh, the nation of Israel, they usually had sufficient water systems, but the Galilee and the Jordan River would sometimes supply at least some of the water, but there was always more need than there was water. As a matter of fact, the Lord spoke about this to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 10. He says, for the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. 
But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven. And it's a land which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. Remember when God made promises. He said, look, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And you're going to obey me. And I'm going to provide for you. And if you do what I ask you to do, there's going to be blessings. And if for whatever reason you decide not to do what's best for you, there's going to be deprivation. And so the people and the land depended upon the rain. And if the people obeyed God's law, the word, the Lord would send the rain. He would provide an abundant harvest, just like it says in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 18 through 20. But the people had persistently and consistently rebelled against God. And so in verse 2, it says, Judah mourns and her gates languish. They mourn for the land and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Verse 3, their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns. They found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and they covered their heads. The point that Jeremiah is making is the drought has affected everyone. It doesn't matter if you live out in the country. It doesn't matter if you live in the city. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or as Bob Dylan used to say, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, blind or lame, living in another country other another name. You got to serve somebody. And these people had turned from God. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel with me, we take a tour. And, and when we go to the different areas throughout Judah and, and Masada and, and in these places, there's huge cisterns that are, that are made literally hewn out of solid rock because the people were so dependent on the rain. And in verse 4 it says, because the ground is parched. For there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. In the city. In the country. The covering of the heads is a, is a picture of the shame that is brought on. The fatigue and the famine. Jeremiah records the devastation of the drought. The city is affected in verses 1 through 3. The farm is affected in verse 4. And yes, it says in verse 5, yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. What? You mean human sin? can have an effect on nature itself? Yeah, the answer is yes. The wildlife was affected by the drought. Nature suffers, groans, because of the wickedness and the rebellion of human beings. The doe, usually faithful to her young. The doe, who is attached to her young, abandons her newborn fawn and leaves the newborn baby to starve in the wilderness because there's no water and there's no food. And in verse 6 it says, And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind. They're sniffing for water like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. The idea being they've glazed over. The, the wild donkey stands in the desolate height. The donkey puts 
its nose to the wind to smell for water. Their eyes glazed over fatigue, dehydration, starvation is beginning to take its toll. What does all this mean to you? Well, you might think that religion is no big deal. But part of the point that God is making in the passage and with the people of Judah and Jerusalem is that entering into a covenant with the living God is a very big deal. Hey, I know what I'll do. I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray a prayer. And if it works, hey, I'll become a Christian. And if it doesn't work, well, no harm, no foul. But is that the way God sees friendship and fellowship with him? Does God see us entering into an experiment that may or may not work? You see, God, when he makes a covenant, he enters into an agreement. And as he enters into the agreement, here's what he basically says to the children of Israel and Judah. I'm going to enter into a special friendship and a special relationship with you. I will Keep my promises. By the way, will God keep his promises even if you don't? What do you suppose the answer is? The answer is yes. God will keep his promises even when you won't. Because he takes it seriously. God keeps his promises both to bless and to discipline. By the way, have you received good things from God? Are you the recipient of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and of his love? Then guess what? You need not wonder if you're also the object of discipline when you disobey God. Do you know why we know that? Because he whom the Lord loves, he chastens and disciplines every son and daughter. In Proverbs 3.11, it says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Proverbs 3.12, For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. I know you had moms and dads who basically said, Bend over! This is going to hurt me way more than it hurts you. And you didn't believe them even for a second. If this hurts you more than it hurts me, then why am I the one crying and you're the one laughing? By the way, do you think about yourself as a good person? Maybe imperfect. Not bad enough to go to hell, but not quite good enough to go to heaven. After all, you've never killed anybody. Or maybe you have, and they just simply deserved it. It reminds me of a former president who was said to have stood in line, and people would come up to him and greet him and say, Hello, Mr. President. How are you, Mr. President? And, and they would never really listen to what he said. So he decided one day as he was in the greeting line, How are you, Mr. President? And the president said, I killed my mother-in-law this morning. That's wonderful, Mr. President. It's so marvelous to meet you. Oh, it's finally great to meet you, Mr. President. I killed my mother-in-law this morning. And he went through about 50 people until the person said, nice to meet you, Mr. President. He said, I killed my mother-in-law this morning. And the person just simply looked at the president and said, well, sir, she probably deserved it. 
You probably think that same way about God. That he sort of superficially hears what you may or may not have to say. We forget that God is righteous and his standard is perfection. And since no one is perfect, what's a sinner to do? How can we ever have a right relationship with God? How can we ever experience cleansing and and forgiveness and reconciliation? And these people are right on the precipice of judgment. And look, the clueless demand in verse 7, the people are praying, O Lord, Though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We've sinned against you. Do you understand what's happening? The drought is taking its toll. They're in huge trouble. By the way, what do you do when you get in trouble? Well, I pray. Of course, that's what they did. They're in trouble, so they start to pray. They cry out to God. The people of Judah and Jerusalem, they're crying out to God because they're in trouble. But their prayers are insincere. The people want the circumstances to change. But they're unwilling to allow their hearts to be broken and changed. And by the way, in previous messages, Jeremiah confronted their hypocrisy and their insincerity. Do you remember in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where Jeremiah basically says, will you steal? Will you commit murder and commit adultery? Will you swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all of these abominations. In other words, God has set us free so we can continue in our sin. God's gotten me off the hook so I can continue to live in this sinful friendship so I can continue this perverse circumstance. It's what the New Testament calls, were you set free so that you could continue in sin? Paul writes about it in the book of Romans and also in the book of Galatians. But the Bible says you were not set free so that you could continue in sin. You were set free so that you could love the Lord and serve the Lord. Jesus set you free. Not so that you could remain in bondage to drugs and alcohol. The people were unwilling to pray and plead and ask for help on a different kind of a basis. You'll notice it says, oh, Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake. Do you understand what they're not praying They're not praying on the basis of personal repentance and an appeal to God's covenant so that the people would basically ask God to do it for his namesake. They're not praying a prayer. Look, Lord, I am willing. Please break my heart. Change my heart. Change my attitude. Turn me from my wickedness and my selfishness into a right relationship with you. It's your word and your reputation that's at stake when they say for your namesake. Because we're called by your name. They're basically saying, hey, look, I thought you were God. Okay, you're God. We're Jews. We're a part of the covenant people. You separated us with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You sent our family into Egypt to suffer slavery and hardship. You redeemed us from the yoke of slavery. You brought us into the land. You made promises. 
You're going to make good on your promises, right? The unbeliever and the make-believer can put on a show. The unbeliever and the make-believer can even pray. Lord, I'm in trouble. I've been arrested. Lord, I'm in trouble. My, my son's been arrested. Lord, I'm in trouble. This terrible thing has happened. Lord, I'm in trouble. I've lost my job. Lord, I'm in trouble. I don't have anywhere to go. And I don't have anyone to rely on. And I don't have anything to do. Lord, I'm in trouble. You've got to save me. You've got to help me. You've got to get me out of this situation. By the way, when God disciplines you, do you act just like people in the world? Do you go, Lord, get me out of this jam? Any unbeliever can pray that prayer, can't they? Or do you cry out to God to change your circumstances, but you never, you never, you never ask him to change your heart? change my circumstances but are you willing to repent of your sins are you willing to call your sins by name are you willing to confess them are you willing to allow God to judge them are you willing to truly and sincerely seek the face of God are you willing to weep and mourn over what your sin has done to others and over what it's done to you that in and of itself isn't going to help you because that's simply regret. The unbeliever and the make-believer can be very sad about what sin has done to someone else. How it's ruined their life. How it's ruined their marriage. When David prayed... He said in Psalm 51, 7, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise in Joel in, in the book of Joel in chapter two, verse 13, when the people were crying out over their sin, when they were crying out and asking God what they should do, Joel wrote, tear your heart and not your garments. Don't just make a physical, external exclamation of what you may or may not do. Are you willing to fundamentally change from the inside out? In verse 8, look what it says. O hope of Israel, his savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? These are the people. They're crying out to God as a result of the drought. They're calling out to God. The, the people call the Lord the hope of Israel, the savior in time of trouble. You've got to understand something. The religious Jews believed that they were eternally secure because they believed and professed the name of the Lord because they were pe the people who preserved God's word. Because they looked forward to the coming of God's Messiah and salvation. In other words, look, we're the people of God. We have the book of God. God's given us prayers. We have religious rituals. We have the temple of God. And they did. But religious rituals. And embracing religious rituals. Is that really what God was looking for? 
Or was he looking for real friendship and fellowship with him? You've got to understand something. For many people, their religion actually never brings them to a place of recognition of their own sin and the need for a savior. They think that they have a right relationship with God because they have a right relationship with religion. But in moments of honesty, they realize that they don't even live up to the demands of their own religion. And so they accommodate their behavior in order to give them a sense of well-being. For years, the people were living a life of backsliding. They were living in sin and disobedience. They were separated and alienated from God. And now under the hand of God's discipline and correction, they felt like God had abandoned them, that he was distant and unconcerned, or that he was only concerned enough to find out that they had done something wrong and punishing them. Some people feel exactly the same way. God, do you care about what's going on? I only care long enough to be able to beat you with my heavenly belt. But that's simply not true. They say the hope and the savior of Israel was like a tourist in the land, unconcerned about either their present condition. And so as they're praying, they go, Lord, what are you, a tourist? Are you just passing through the land of Judah and Jerusalem? I mean, take a look, just pause, stop for a moment and look to the left and look to the right. And can't you see that we're in trouble? That's what they're praying. The Lord was like a person shocked into paralysis or a warrior completely without strength. In verse nine, why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? The prayer is, in fact, something like this. You seem surprised but you can't do anything about it. Or you seem like a warrior who was made to fight, but can't fight on our behalf. Which is it, Lord? Are you a tourist who doesn't care? Are you a stranger just passing through? Are you a powerless soldier? Are you unable to help? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, are you up there? Can you help me? Is anybody up there? Can you help me? And verse 9, do not leave us. At the end of the sentence, it says, yet you, O Lord, are in our midst and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. And then in verse 10, thus says the Lord to the people. He's answering their prayer. Thus, they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. What? Yeah, here's the answer to their prayer. These people love to wander. They've not restrained their feet. Now think just for a moment. How is God answering their prayer? Rain. We want Rain. No rain. We need help. No help. We don't want to be judged. You will be judged. Do you understand what's happening? The people love to wander. They have not restrained their feet. In other words, they walk wherever they want. 
you might be wondering, well, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem like a loving God. This doesn't seem like a gracious and merciful God. Why won't God answer their prayer? Haven't you ever asked that question? Why won't he answer my prayer? Why won't he answer their prayer? The Lord rejects the people's appeal. Why? Because they're not sincere. They're not willing to repent. They're not willing to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. The people love their sin. They love their pleasure. They love their possessions. They've continued in sin in a, in a wicked lifestyle. That's the very fabric of their being. They're enslaved to their sin. They've presumed upon God. And then they continue to presume upon God. And so for the person who prays, Lord, I want you to forgive me today. It's Wednesday. It's about eight o'clock. And today would be a great day if you would wash me and cleanse me and purify me. And the very next thing in your mind is, but I can't wait for tomorrow. I can't wait to embrace my sin and indulge my sin and continue in my sin. I have no intention of knowing, loving or serving the Lord. Here's the difference. I don't know your heart. Most of us don't even know our own heart. But God knows your heart. He knows what you're willing to do. He knows what you're not willing to do. The Lord knows whether or not the conviction is real. And the Lord knows whether or not the repentance is real. And the Lord knows whether or not you're really, truly serious with God. No, it's God who says you've gone too far. You've crossed the line. The issue seems to be not that they've exhausted God's patience, not that they've exhausted God's grace, but rather because of their wickedness and sin, that no matter how much they suffer, no matter how severe the discipline, no matter how loud the warning, they won't repent. What has to happen? What has to be taken away? What has to happen before you will fully and finally and completely say, God, you have not only my attention, but you have my heart and you have my future. If you're wondering if this particular passage applies to you, if you're wondering whether or not you've gone too far, if you're wondering whether or not you've exhausted God's patience or grace, if you're wondering whether or not there's still patience from God and grace available to you. I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. That God's grace and God's mercy and God's patience and God's love are available. Then why aren't they available for this people? Because God knows the truth. They won't change. Look what it says in verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for these people for their good. This is the third time God has instructed Jeremiah don't pray for these people. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 14. Lord, maybe they will change. The patience and the long-suffering of God has come to an end. The Lord has determined 
to punish the people of Jerusalem and Judea for their sins. Is it possible you could pray for Lord, I don't want to go to jail. Lord, I don't want to go into rehab. Lord, I don't want to lose my home. Lord, I don't want to lose my marriage. Lord, I don't want to lose my children. What if we pray? What if we fast? Will God change his mind? Look what it says in verse 12. When they fast, I won't hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I won't accept them. But I will consume them by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. Well, what if we fast? Won't that change God's mind? What if we pray? Won't that change God's mind? What if we bring a sacrifice? Won't that change God's mind? Remember what's happening here. It isn't the change of God's mind. They're looking for the wrong change. They're looking to change God's mind and God's heart concerning the consequences of their sin. But they have refused repeatedly, persistently, over and over again to change their heart. The Lord is unwilling to change his mind. About a Christ rejecting planet, the Lord is unwilling to change his mind about an earth that is headed for a catastrophic judgment. By the way, the whole book of Revelation has been written in order to remind the world that there is a day of grace, the day of grace, the day of grace. There's a day of grace. By the way, that day is now. The day of grace is now. There is forgiveness now and there's grace now and there's mercy now and there is opportunity to have a right relationship with God in Jesus right now. Grace precedes judgment. But make no mistake about it. There will come a day when the sun will come up and go down And people will have the last cup of tea or coffee or Starbucks. They'll have their last beignet or bagel. They'll have their last breakfast and they'll have their last lunch and they'll have their last dinner. And the sun will set. And grace will not be available. Judgment will be available. And that judgment is talked about in the book of Revelation. And as you can imagine, Jeremiah is shocked. How do you deal with this? How do you talk about God's grace? And how do you talk about God's mercy? And how do you talk about God's love? How do you reconcile a God who loves you, who's willing to express mercy towards you, and yet you keep talking about this punishment and this judgment And Jeremiah is struggling. In verse 13, then I said, look what it says. Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you see famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Do you understand what Jeremiah is saying? These people, these poor people, Lord, the people have been seduced by false prophets. False prophets have come into their midst. The false prophets have said, 
There's not going to be a judgment. Sword, famine, pestilence. It's not going to happen. The false prophets have said, you're Jews. You're kids of the kingdom. You're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the keepers of the Bible. You are the promoters of a future Messiah who's going to save us. This is the city of God, Jerusalem, and that's the temple of God where we worship God. And the prophet Jeremiah says these people have the disadvantage of being exposed to false prophets and false teachers who have told them that everything's fine and that everything is okay. And and maybe... Maybe we can blame the false prophets and the false teachers. Maybe if I hadn't grown up in Roman Catholicism or Hinduism or Buddhism, maybe if I hadn't grown up in Islam, maybe if I hadn't grown up in these particular circumstances and been told over and over again that I'm just fine and that everything's fine and that you don't have to worry about God and you don't have to worry about Jesus and you don't have to worry about sin and you don't have to worry about heaven and hell. And we can stand before God and we can shake our fist at Roman Catholicism or Hinduism or Buddhism or Protestantism or atheism or secularism or whatever ism you want to blame. And then blame that for the reason why you were separated from God and distant from God and estranged from God. And you didn't obey him and you didn't love him. Maybe the false prophets and the false teachers are to blame. Doesn't the fact that the false teachers and the false prophets and they're making false promises, doesn't that mean anything? We can't hold the people entirely accountable for their circumstances and their unbelief. And look what it says in verse 14. And the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I haven't sent them. I never commanded them. I never spoke to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Underline that, the deceit of their heart. It's the product of their own wishful thinking. Everything isn't fine. Sin is a real problem. Rebellion and disobedience is a real problem. It's a lying vision. The false prophets believed that they were representing God. They were totally sincere. And they were sincerely wrong. Worthless divination like palm reading, crystal balls, a worthless thing, empty, no value. It's the deceit of their heart. The Lord doesn't dispute the claim that the false teachers and the false prophets bear responsibility for their false teaching and their false prophecy. But part of the point that God is going to make is that doesn't let the people off the hook for their own sin and rebellion. The people should have known better. The people had the responsibility to recognize the false prophet and the false teacher in the midst. As a matter of fact, the Lord had given two tests of a true prophet of God. Number one, their prediction has to come true 100% of the time. Well, what if I'm 99% right? Not good enough. Hey, I got to tell you. Seven out of ten is pretty good. Not according to God's standard. Sorry, Harold Camping. 
You don't get to predict over and over again the end of the world. According to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22, it says that the prophecy has to come to true. And number two, the message must agree with the word of God and the character of God and the law of God. According to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 18, as a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, it says any prophet that basically permitted the worship of idols contrary to God's law, is a false prophet. In 8.20 it says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to the word, it is because the light isn't in them. It wasn't good enough. They had to be 100% right. They had to speak in such a way that was consistent with the character of God and the word of God, even if they performed miracles. But they spoke in a way that was inconsistent with the word of God, the nature of God, or the character of God. If they denied God's word, if they denied God's message, then the man or the woman was to be rejected. And in verse 15 it says, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send. And who say sword and famine shall not be in this land by sword and famine. Those prophets shall be consumed. Do you understand what's happening? The Lord's pronouncing judgment. The false prophets will be consumed by the very thing that the false prophets taught the people to ignore. Do you understand what's happening? Ignore the coming war. There's not going to be a war. Ignore the coming famine. There's not going to be a coming famine. Ignore the possibility of captivity. There's not going to be any captivity. And they will die. They will be consumed by the very thing that they teach the people to ignore. And look at verse 16. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and of the sword. They will have no one to bury them. Them, nor their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters. For I will pour their wickedness on them. The false teachers and the false prophets will be punished. The Babylonian army will come in. They will kill the false prophets. They will kill their wives. They will kill their children. They will kill their neighbors. They will kill their friends. And there will be no one, no one. No one left to bury their bodies. The Bible gives us repeated warnings that the false prophet will be judged. That the false prophet will be dealt with. When he says, I will pour their wickedness, ra'ah, wickedness. This can include moral wrong and calamity. The idea is, I will pour the lies and the deceit and the rebellion and the foolish prophesying upon them. And look at the concerned decision. Look what it says in verse 17. Therefore you shall say this word to them. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day. And let them not cease. 
For the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke, with a very severe blow. Do you understand what Jeremiah has prayed? Lord. Isn't there anything we can do? How am I to understand your love and judgment at the same time? Isn't there anything else to do? How can we make this judgment go away? How can we insert hope in the circumstances? The Lord says, therefore, you shall say this word to them. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day and let them not cease. Do you understand what it's saying? No, the judgment is going to come. How do you reconcile God's love and God's judgment? The simple answer is the cross of Calvary. How serious is sin? Usually you can tell how big a problem is by what it takes to solve the problem. And what's it going to take to solve the problem of human sin? It's going to take the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Savior. He will come and he will die. And he will take upon himself the sin of the world. Isn't it funny? In one sense, that the judgment of God is seen on the cross of Calvary, but yet the love of God is demonstrated here in his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. It's the picture of love and it's the picture of judgment. This is where judgment and love meet in the person of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. The satisfaction for sin, the judgment for sin. And so in verse 17, how does God feel? Do you want to know how God really feels about this? Jeremiah said, weep for the people in Jeremiah 9, 8. Weep for the people. Jeremiah 13, 7. Weep for the people. Jeremiah 14, 17. Weep for the people. This is why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He feels like a father whose virgin daughter, Bethulah, has been violated and beaten and humiliated and left to die. For the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke with a severe blow. I think it has a double meaning. Who's the virgin daughter? It's Jerusalem. Impregnable. Beautiful, chaste. But Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The city had been protected. But now the city will be ravished. A father's job is to protect his daughter. A father's job is to make sure no harm happens to her. How could she be left so exposed and so vulnerable? And a deep sense of sorrow surges through Jeremiah. Because you may have forgotten something. With the judgment on the city. And with the judgment on Judah. Jeremiah isn't exempt from the pain. And he isn't exempt from the sorrow. And he isn't exempt from the consequences. And so he cries. And he cries a lot. You know, being a Christian doesn't make you immune from heartache, does it? 
It doesn't spare you from sorrow or tribulation. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you never experience pain and you never experience sorrow and you're immune from the circumstances of the world in which we live. One person wrote, if God sends you a cross, take it up and follow him. Use it wisely, lest it be unprofitable. Bear it patiently lest it be intolerable. If it's light, slight it not. If it's heavy, murmur not. Sometimes we see the consequences of sin played out to the people who we love the most. Jeremiah says, if I go out to the field, then behold, those slain with the sword. And if I enter the city, then behold, those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land that they don't know. In other words, here's the vision. Jeremiah sees in his vision all of the dead who are in the country. He sees all of the dead who is in the city. He sees all of those who are sick and dying as a result of the famine. He sees the false prophet and the priest going about as if Nothing is really happening. But he knows better. Because he can see into the future. Just like you can see into the future. Everyone who has ever read their Bible can see into the future. And they see a God pouring out his love and his grace and his mercy. They see a God offering hope and love and redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation in the person of Jesus Christ. And then there's that person who says, I don't want that. That's not what I want. I don't want God and I don't want Jesus and I don't want forgiveness. I don't want hope. That's not what I want. That's not not what I need. That's not what I think I need. That's not what I want. And you see the day of grace come to an end and you see a future judgment. Jeremiah sees that the people are dead because they've been misled. In verse 19, it says, have you utterly rejected Judah as your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us that there's no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good. And for the time of healing, and there was trouble. Verse 20, we acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we've sinned against you. Verse 21, do not abhor us for your namesake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. What's the disgrace, the throne of your glory? What is that? Some people think it's the temple. Some people think it's the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. Some people think it's Jerusalem, which houses the temple. It might be a reference to, to the Jerusalem. It might be a reference to the temple. It might be a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. Whatever else it means, it means Wait a minute, we thought that somehow the land and the city and the temple were all linked together in God's redemptive purposes. And they are. But God will allow the city to be destroyed and the temple to be destroyed and the people deported because guess what? The people will be disciplined and they will come back and the temple will be rebuilt and God's plans and purposes will still be restored because Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. 
and he'll live that perfect life and he'll die on the cross and he'll rise from the dead. Oh, Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we've sinned against you. You know, it's one thing to confess your wickedness, and it's another thing to confess the iniquity of the culture or the country in which you live. It's one thing to confess that you've sinned against God. But it's another thing to take the cure. A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. Broken over sin. A willingness to turn from sin. A willingness to embrace the Savior. In verse 22 it says, Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you since you've made all of these. Three questions. Idols can't produce rain. The heavens can't produce rain. Only God can end the drought. That's what he's praying. In order for the drought to go away, only God can make the drought go away. Is there a spiritual drought? Is there a physical famine? Is something going on in your life, in your heart, in your circumstances where you are weak and you are weary and you are empty? But only God can end the drought. In the book of Proverbs, it says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. That's what it says in Proverbs 24.10. If you faint in the day of adversity... Your strength is small. When the wickedness and the calamity come, sometimes you feel overwhelmed. Someone wrote, a smooth sea can never make a skillful mariner. Neither do uninterrupted prosperity and success qualify for usefulness and happiness. The storms of adversity, like those of the ocean, rouse the faculties, excite the invention, prudence, skill, and fortitude of the voyager. The martyrs of ancient times, embracing their minds to outward calamities, acquired a loftiness of purpose and a moral heroism worth a lifetime of softness and security. It was their way of saying... Don't you remember how people have lived in the past as they've suffered pain and hardship and deprivation? Only crushed grapes can become wine. And God tests his real friends. You know, in this passage, you ask the question, well, does God allow disasters to bring people to their knees? Would God use something like a hurricane? Or would he use a tsunami? Or would he use a failed marriage? Would he use a 9-11? Would he use a Columbine? Would, what, will, would God use disasters to bring people to their knees? What do you think the answer is? Clearly he has in the past. Does that mean that a disaster is always the result of some judgment, I think we would go too far. Warren Wiersbe writes, while we shouldn't interpret every calamity as an expression of divine wrath, we must be sensitive to God and willing to search our hearts and confess our sins. Does every calamity mean something? Well, 
Does it hurt to be sensitive to God? Does it hurt to search our hearts? Does it hurt to confess our sins? Maybe you, like Jeremiah, struggle. Wait a minute, God. How can you be so loving and how can you still hate sin so much? The answer? Because he's holy. And because he's just. And because he is perfect love. How do you reconcile love and how do you reconcile judgment? It's not in a theological construct and it's not in a church and it isn't in some sort of prayer. It is in the person of Jesus. Jesus himself becomes the answer to both judgment, justice and love. The reason God seeks to correct us in part is so that we would avoid hurting ourselves and hurting others. The Lord will discipline us. He will correct us, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. Again, Hebrews 12:5 repeats it. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as children? My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord or faint when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And in Job 5:17 it says, "Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects." Therefore, don't despise the chastening of the Almighty. Have you come under discipline lately? Have you been reaping what you've sown? Have you cried out to God to change your circumstance, but not change your heart? Do you really understand what repentance means? It means confessing your sin, being willing to turn from your sin. It means forsaking that sin. It means not returning to that sin. Are you willing to admit how it's hurt you and hurt others? It's not just simply that. It's all of that. Guess what? There is grace. There is mercy. There is love available. But you have to Cry out for it. Ask for it. Tell God what's going on in your life and in your heart. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person. Lord, the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem would not, could not turn. They refused in spite of the pleadings, in spite of the tears, in spite of the warnings. Heavenly Father, we pray that we wouldn't be so stubborn that, Lord, when we see the tears that our husband, our wives and our children cry, Lord, when we see the tears of the pain caused by our sin, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't harden our hearts. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't harden our heart to our circumstances, that, Lord, we would cry out with equal vigor, not just to change our circumstances, but to change our hearts. That like the psalmist, that Lord, you would tell us to search our hearts, to know us, to see if there's any wicked way in us, and that you would be the one who would lead us in the way everlasting. And Lord, we know that that way is through the cross of Calvary and through the shed blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus, the love of Jesus.
And so, Lord, we pray that we would not refuse such a wonderful and marvelous love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.